As was said a little bit earlier, I want to share with you for this morning and next Wednesday morning on the subject of worship. And this is a little bit of a vast subject to handle in two chapels. I feel uh, like I'm trying to collect the Pacific Ocean in a bucket. It is a little bit overwhelming. But I'd like to begin by having you open your Bible to the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 4. And I want you to follow carefully because this is the word of our Lord to us. And I want you to hear it as such. It is from him. Jesus in this particular text in John 4 is having a conversation with a woman who is a Samaritan. That is to say she is an outcast. Any Jew who intermarried with a Gentile would be considered to be a traitor to the great nationalistic spirit of Israel. And the Samaritans were the product of such intermarriage. This particular woman is a Samaritan. But wonderfully, it is this woman who is the first person who finds out, in fact, that Jesus is the Messiah, demonstrating to us that Christ came not only for the Jews, but for the whole world. And in the conversation that Jesus has with this woman, the conversation revolves around worship. Because the Samaritans had their own worship, their own temple on Mount Gerizim, in the region of Samaria, north of Jerusalem. And, of course, the Jews had their worship on their mount in Jerusalem, and their temple was located there. And they tended to identify worship with a location rather than the attitude of a heart. You sort of were in your temple and you worshipped, and if you were out of your temple, you didn't. And Jesus then strikes up this conversation relative to the fact that worship is not a matter of where you are. It is a matter of who you are and your heart attitude. In verse 20, we begin with the conversation, first of all, from the woman. Our fathers, referring to the Samaritan people, worshipped in this mountain. That's Mount Gerizim in the area of Samaria. And you say, that is you Jews, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour comes, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We can stop at that point. Now, it's an obvious thing that Jesus is saying. The woman says, well, I'm confused. I've always been told that we're supposed to worship in Mount Gerizim. You Jews say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. I'd like to know which is the proper place to worship. I mean, she knows she's talking to a man sent from God. She said in verse 19, I perceive you're a prophet. And if you've come from God, you must be able to answer this dilemma that I have in my mind about where is the right place to worship. And Jesus' answer is, there is no right place to worship. There's only a right way to worship. Right? It isn't in this mountain, and it isn't in Jerusalem, and it isn't any place. It's the attitude of the heart. And the problem is that you don't know what you're worshiping. It isn't where you worship, it's what you worship. And you don't know that. We, Jews, at least worship the right God in a way prescribed by God. 
So what he identifies here is that worship is a matter of who you worship and how you worship, not what? Not where you worship. Charles Haddon Spurgeon one time said, if there were no 11 o'clock Sunday morning service, how many of you would be Christians? That's a fair enough question. If there were no church building for you to attend, how many of you would worship God? But it is a matter of who you worship and how you worship, not where you worship. Now, let's talk about worship. We're going to continue this, so I'm not in a, in a real hurry to cover the things I want to share. You know, we have in America now approximately 360,000 churches. It's a lot of churches. And the churches in America own somewhere around 800 to $900 billion worth of church buildings. And with all of those churches and all of that money invested, you would think that we would be pretty good at worship. But the truth of the matter is we're not. And much of the church equates worship with uh, stained glass windows and organ music, with certain forms and rituals and robes and standing up and sitting down and singing certain songs and various rituals that are a part of different denominations. The church is programmed. The church is well-informed. The church is planned. It is influential. It is busy. It is aggressive. Sometimes it is even clever and motivated. But somewhere along the line, I think Christian people have lost the touch of what worship is really all about. And I think there's another contributing factor to this, other than just our preoccupation with activity. That is the fact that we have been watching over the last 10 or 15 years the development of what we could call a man-centered theology. A theology that is basically premised on the fact that you need to have your needs met before anything else happens. In other words, it's most important that you feel good about yourself. And you have all of the people who come down the pike like the Kenneth Copeland... Kenneth Hagin, Robert Schuller kind of people who say basically, name it and claim it. I mean, God's a utilitarian genie. Rub him on the back, he'll jump out of his bottle and give you three wishes. I mean, you're a Christian, you've got him cornered, make your demands. I mean, lay it on him heavy because he's got to deliver the goods. He saved you, now he's stuck. That's a man-centered theology. Or the kind of theology where you go to church and all you ever hear is sort of a, a quasi-biblical psychology where people tell you you ought to feel good about yourself and a whole lot of self-image kind of things. And you want to get your strokes and make sure that church makes you feel good. And you have typically people leaving church and somebody will say to someone, well, what did you get out of it? You ever heard anybody say that? Or else, I didn't get much out of that. You ever said that? Whoever said you were supposed to get anything out of it? You think a priest in the Old Testament or an offerer in the Old Testament took a lamb in and put it on the altar and it was burned and went out and said, I didn't get anything out of that. You weren't supposed to get anything out of that. You're supposed to bring something. You're supposed to give something. See, worship, I don't know what I'm doing wrong here, folks. But anyway, worship is not a matter of getting. Worship is a matter of what? How many people go to church to give? How many people go to church and come out and say, Boy, I gave the Lord my whole heart and all my attention and all my thoughts and my meditations. I gave the Lord my adoration and my praise. What a wonderful experience. If somebody said that in a typical church patio, people would think they'd lost their mind. Now, wait a minute. Isn't church where you go to get something? We have really, really fallen prey to a, a man-centered theology. And it's sad. And I think it is contributed to by the shallowness of our preaching. That's why we have shallow worship and shallow people. Let's look at this passage and see what we can learn about true worship, all right? And see if we can't get a new perspective. Very, very important. Now, the word worship, in some form or another, appears eight times from verse 20 through 24. Eight times the word worship appears. 
It doesn't take a Phi Beta Kappa to figure out what the subject is. It's worship. And to give you a simple definition, note this in your mind, write it down in your notes if you want to. Worship is honor paid to God. Worship is honor paid to God. That's simple enough. It is what you give to God. It is the respect, the adoration, the glory, the honor that you offer God. Now, there are some key words in the New Testament that are related to this. One is the word proskuneo. That's an interesting word. It basically means, if you just take the root of the word and sort of dissect it, proskuneo means to kiss toward. And it has to do with the ancient custom of uh, leaning down, prostrating yourself before some monarch and, God forbid, kissing his feet. That's what was done. And the idea is to demonstrate the, the subjectiveness of worship, where you literally pour out your heart in adoring praise, bowing down, prostrating oneself, kissing the foot, or in some other circumstances, kissing the hand. That is a New Testament word used for worship. It is where one prostrates oneself before a superior God in a, an act of obeisance, in an act of uh, subjection, and offers praise. There is another word used, very familiar word, latruo, and it basically means to render service. Uh, to do the bidding in order to serve. So essentially we can say that worship is giving honor and service to God. And that's really the sum of a whole biblical definition. Worship is giving honor and service to God. Our word worship comes from an old English word, worthship, which is to say that God is worth our praise. Now, basically, then, what we come together to do as Christians, whenever we convene, even in a time like this, is to offer God honor and praise, and then to go from this place to offer him what? Service. That's basically what worship is all about. It isn't necessarily a goosebump that you get from hearing a certain song or a certain tune. It isn't necessarily some kind of um, religious protocol. It is a hard attitude. Now, let me make a distinction for a moment, if I can, between ministry and worship. Ministry, we all understand. We all talk about we want to be ministering, serving the Lord, doing the Lord's work, getting out, getting involved, and that's a very important area. But ministry is that which comes down to us from God. It flows down to us from God through the Son and the power of the Spirit through our human instrumentation. It comes from God by the Spirit of God through us. Worship is that which goes up from us, also energized by the Spirit of God through the Son, but ascends to the Father. And so then we have to look at our Christian life as a, as a sort of a two-way enterprise. It is God ministering by His Spirit through us as instruments, and it is our praise by the Spirit through us back to God. That's the twofold aspect. You can see it demonstrated, for example, in the Old Testament. If uh, I can ask you a simple question. What were the two dominant religious functions in the nation Israel? What two people or two offices do you think of when you think of the religion of Israel? What do you think of? A priest and what else? A prophet. A prophet's primary function was to speak to the people on behalf of God. A priest's primary function was to speak to God on behalf of of the people. And one, in a sense, is ministry, the work of the prophet, and the other is worship, the work of the priest. Ministry descends from God, worship ascends to God. 
And I fear that we have lost the balance of that. And one of the things we're committed to at the Master's College is to make sure that we maintain that kind of balance. That's why, young people, it is so critical for you to be a part of a church ministry where you can be with those of like precious faith, participating in the corporate worship of the assembled people who know the redemption of Christ. You cannot have an imbalance in your life. Now, we will do all we can to provide a certain place for worship, even in our fellowship together as we did today in the singing. But you need to be a part of the great conclave of corporate worship of God's redeemed people. And that's why we urge you to go to church. It isn't that we're trying to follow some legalistic code. I know how critical worship is. I know how life-changing worship is. And I would dare say that if you went through the whole process of an education in this college and learned everything that you could possibly learn here and did not know and experience worship with God's redeemed people, you'd come out of here lame in terms of your spiritual experience. And I'll say something even stronger than that. If I had the choice of seeing that you were involved in a church worship regularly for the next four years or being educated here, I would choose the worship. Because that's how essential I believe it is. That you learn to offer your praise to God, to sit under the teaching of the Word of God in the service of the church by the anointed men of God who articulate that Word. And that you learn how to offer yourself to God. And some of you are saying to yourself, well, I've been going to church a long time and I don't even think I ever did that. And that's a tragedy, but I agree that that's true in many, many cases. In many cases, a church service is little more than a string of unrelated activities that have very little to do with God and a whole lot to do with how how the people ought to get organized for the stuff they're supposed to be doing with a 15-minute or 30-minute sermon thrown in. Or very often, a, a church service is little more than a lot of miscellaneous hymns that don't seem to be taking us anywhere Uh, with a final sermon on how to get saved to a bunch of people who've been saved for 30 years. And there are very many of you who have not experienced what a worship is all about. But given that there is that opportunity to really worship God, and I don't know how you you reacted to, to last night's time, but that was a great time of worship. And if you really thought your way through the words of those hymns, and if you listened to what was being said, by those who were offering praise to God. And if you sang those hymns and heard those anthems and identified in your own heart and mind with the things that those writers had penned, you knew what it was to lift your heart to God. That's not entertainment. I I always kind of laugh when I'm in a service somewhere and the guy says, everybody's been sitting so long, let's stand up and sing a hymn. Listen. Hymn singing is not to loosen up your tail section. It always bothers me when somebody does that. It is to bring honor to God. And I think if you begin to understand that in your heart, you'll begin to really draw nigh unto God in the assembly of His redeemed people. And some marvelous and wonderful confrontation will happen between you and the living God when you experience the worship. Let's talk about our passage then. First of all, let's look at the source of worship. The source of worship. Well, you notice in verse 23, at the end of the verse, the Father seeketh such to worship Him. (laughs) The Father seeketh such to worship Him. Is it this one?
week we'll get organized. All right. The source of worship. All right, verse 23 then. The Father seeketh such to worship him. The source is God. God is the author of worship. That's where worship begins. It begins in the redemptive plan of God. And I want you to really understand this. So let's look at Romans chapter 1 for a moment. Romans chapter 1 sort of identifies to us the problem of man's sinfulness. It says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, you know, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness and so forth. But down in verse 20, it begins to identify for us the purpose of God's redemption. It says there, the invisible things of him, that is, what is true about God but can't be seen. God is invisible. He's a spirit. So what could not be seen about God can become visible through the creation of the world. In other words, we would not know God unless we could see him revealed in his creation. We look at the creation and we can ascertain certain things to be true about God. And they are understood to us by the things that are made. So we look at the world and we say, yes, there is a God. We can understand his eternal power. We know he must be powerful. And we know he is a Godhead. That is to say that he is a, a sovereign, divine source. So that we are without excuse. And here comes the problem. When men knew God, that is by conscience and creation, the conscience being mentioned in verse 19, when men knew God, they glorified him not as God. Now, that's man's basic problem. He refuses to give honor to God. And they weren't thankful. They were empty in their thought processes. Their foolish heart was darkened. They imagined themselves to be wise. The fact is they had become absolute fools. And they had changed the glory of the incorruptible God. And he goes on to describe the forms of idolatry. Now, the basic problem with sinful man is that sinful man refuses to worship God. Redemption, then, is God's way of recovering man into a worshiping identification with himself. That is the purpose of salvation, that we might be to the praise of his glory, that we might be recovered from a, a situation where we give no glory to God to a situation where we live to his glory. And that's why, as we've been seeing on Sunday uh, at Grace Church for the last few weeks, that our purpose is that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we what? We do all of the glory of God. We've been saved to the glory of God. The apostles preached obedience to the faith for the sake of his name. It is the glory of God, then, that is the issue. And so the purpose of salvation is to bring us into the place of being worshipers. Now, I want you to understand that because it's a vital understanding. You were redeemed to worship. That's before you were redeemed to serve or to enjoy or to go to heaven. The Father is redeeming people because he's seeking true worshipers. He's seeking those who will worship him. Now, worship is a vital, vital part of Christian experience. In fact, it is the most foundational part of all. You remember reading in Hebrews chapter 11 and all those heroes of faith? I don't know if you can think back, but you know who the first one mentioned after uh, the initial introduction in the chapter is Abel. And the second one mentioned is Enoch. And the third one mentioned is Noah. And if you follow the text, you will find that Enoch is an illustration of worship. And, uh, pardon me, Abel is an illustration of worship. Why? Because Abel offered to God a proper what? Sacrifice. Enoch is an illustration of, of walking with God. And he kept walking and God was having such a great time walking with him. They walked to heaven together and he never died. 
And Noah is a great illustration of working. 120 years to build a boat by faith. So what you have is Abel worship, Enoch walk, and Noah work. And I believe there's a divine priority there. Before the work comes the walk, and before the walk comes what? The worship. That's where it all starts. A worshiping heart. And that's why the last week has been filled with things about God. You go back to the Old Testament and you see what happens when somebody violates the standard of worship. Go back to the Old Testament and see what happens when Israel in Exodus 32 builds a golden calf and God comes down and slaughters thousands of them because of that violation. Go to the 10th chapter of Leviticus and watch Nadab and Abihu, who are the sons of Aaron, who have all their life long been prepared for the priesthood. And on the first day of their entrance into the priesthood, after waiting many years, and they are fully now to function as a priest, they do what they shouldn't have done. They offered strange fire. They were not discreet in their behavior. I believe personally the text indicates they had a little too much to drink in the celebration of their first day in the priesthood. And they behaved in a way that was a violation of God's law offering strange fire, and God killed them dead on the spot, which is an amazing thing. Amazing. First day in the priesthood, you do it wrong and you're dead. I mean, I read that many years ago and thought, give me a break, God. My first sermon was bad, but I'll get better. I mean, don't knock me out at the beginning. But they had violated the procedure of worship. Or you could read 1 Samuel 13, and here is Saul, and Saul decides that he's going to act like a priest, and God removes his entire line from any hope of having a king again, because you do not worship God as you think you should. You worship God according to his revelation. And you remember in 2 Samuel, Uzzah. Uzzah was a guy who was transporting the ark, you remember, and he put it on a new cart. No doubt Uzzah was a Kohathite who had been trained to carry it on poles. That's the only way it was to be carried, the Ark of the Covenant. And he put it on a new cart, and the cart hit a pothole in the road, and the ark started to fall off, and he reached out and touched it, and God killed him dead on the spot. And somebody would say, well, why would God do that when he was only trying to protect the ark from falling down? God did it because he was violating a principle of revelation regarding how the symbol of the presence of God was to be treated. So worship is an exceedingly serious issue in the Old Testament. The people of of God were chastened and chastised repeatedly by the prophets for their ill-advised and unfaithful and ritualistic and hypocritical worship. You read the prophet Malachi, and you read about how the, the people came to God and they were offering him the worst that they had. You know, they were to bring what kind of a lamb? A lamb without what? Blemish and without spot. And so they were bringing a lamb with a blemish and with a spot. In other words, they were bringing a lamb that was the worst one of all so that they wouldn't be really making any sacrifice. And so God says to the prophet, why are you offering me this lame animal? And goes on to speak about his fiery judgment against such hypocritical worship. Prophet Amos in chapter 5 tells the people of Israel to stop singing their songs. He says, I don't want to hear your songs until your hearts are right. Your songs are an abomination to me. Don't offer me that hypocritical singing. You're better off silent than to sing something of praise that you do not mean from the heart. And Isaiah in chapter 1 speaks of the disease of the people of Israel who are so diseased that anything they offer to God is as a stench, as it were, in his own nostrils. Is it any wonder in Isaiah 66 that when the prophet sort of sums up everything in terms of what God desires. It says this, Thus saith the Lord, Isaiah 66, 1, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. 
Where is the house that you build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? In other words, there's a certain sense in which God is saying, I am uncontainable. I have everything I need. I am absolutely independent. You really couldn't offer me anything that I needed. But there is one thing I want. In verse 2 he says, All those things has my hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. In other words, God doesn't really need anything. But having said that, he says this, But to this one thing, the authorized translates or implies the word man, to this one thing would I look. In other words, God says, I don't need anything. And you can't make me anything that, that I could possibly not make for myself. You can't offer me a thing. But there is one thing I do want. I want him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. Did you get that? What is God looking for from you? He's looking for a a spirit of brokenness over your sin. We saw that in Isaiah 6 last week, didn't we? He's looking for that humility, that brokenness, that is the, the projection of a contrite heart. And he's looking for someone who trembles at his word, who has a sense of fear in the heart, a wholesome awe for the word of the living God. He does not treat it lightly. Do you remember the first act of the official ministry of Jesus? You remember what it was? Think back. What is the, the first basic act of the official public ministry of Jesus? He went to Jerusalem. He went to the temple. And what did he do? He made a whip and he threw everybody out. In other words, the news is all bad before it can even begin to be good. And the first thing Jesus did, he said, I shall suddenly come to my temple. That's the prophecy of the Old Testament. And the thing that Jesus did is a demonstration to me of the fact that the first thing he wanted to set right was what? Worship. And worship was not right. And so he attacked the status quo of worship and basically said, you cannot do this to my father's house. You have made it a den of thieves. Its intention is to be a place of worship. And then he went on from there in the conversation with the Samaritan woman two chapters later. This is in John 2, in John 4, to explain in further detail that he really here had come as an agent of the Father, the agent of the Father, to seek true worshipers. Keep it in mind then, the coming of Jesus Christ was an attack on false worship and an effort to bring about what? True worship. The Father seeks true worshipers. We are saved for the purpose of worship, of adoration and praise. And I know this may juggle some of your thinking because most people have been taught that you are saved as a way into the goodies. And there is all of that that God promises. But that is a byproduct to the privilege of being able to offer worship. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 26, and I want to show you the proper response with an Old Testament illustration, if I might. In Deuteronomy 26, verse 5, it, it recites the blessing of God, and thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, Assyrian, ready to perish was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became there a nation great, mighty, and populous. 
other words, talking about God beginning the nation Israel. And the Egyptians badly treated us and afflicted us and laid on us hard bondage. You remember the Egyptian bondage. And when we cried to the Lord God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice, looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with awe-inspiring terror and with signs and with wonders and hath brought us into this place and hath given us this land, even a land that flows with milk and honey. Now that, that is a marvelous and brief description of the salvation of Israel, isn't it? And it is, a, it is, in a sense, a symbol or a model or an example of our own salvation. Now, verse 10 gives us the proper response. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which thou, O Lord, hast given me. What is the immediate response to that? To do what? To give. To bring an offering. And thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God and worship before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice in every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given unto thee and unto thine house, thou and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. The proper response to salvation then is what? It's worship. It's an offering. It's giving. And I can't tell you how it grieves my heart to see a whole generation of Christian people being sold a lie that the right response to salvation is to make demands on God. And see if you can't get more. The whole perspective is wrong. We have been redeemed for the purpose of worship. And you can trace this through Scripture repeatedly. But let me just take you to the end and give you a feeling for this. Revelation, chapter 4. In verse 10, just follow along. Revelation 4.10, the four and twenty elders, representatives, I, I believe, of God's redeemed people, fell down before him that is seated on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, and so forth. Now, here we are, folks, in heaven. And what are the twenty-four elders doing in heaven? What are they doing? They're worshiping. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. And the four living creatures, I believe representative of angelic beings, said, Amen. They were good Southern Baptists also. And the four and twenty elders fell down, and what? What did they do? They worshipped him that lives forever and ever. Look at chapter 11. And verse 16. And the four and twenty elders who sat before God on their thrones fell upon their faces and what? Worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, who art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. Look at chapter 14, verse 7. And here... The angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting good news that God will redeem men by grace through faith, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And may I suggest to you that the everlasting good news is that God is calling to himself people who what? Who will worship. That's the everlasting gospel. 
God is redeeming true worshipers. Chapter 15, verse 4. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee. That day is coming. That is the intention of God's redemption, to gather to himself a perfect people for eternal worship. Chapter 19, verse 4, again, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. Then in chapter 22, the final chapter in this great revelation, verses 8 and 9, And I, John, saw these things and heard them, and when I had heard and seen, I fell down to what? To worship before the feet of the angel who showed me the things. It's a nice idea, John, but he said, you better not do that, for I am thy fellow servant. I am a created being of thy brother and the prophets and those who keep the words of this book. And then what did the angel say? Worship God. Can you underline that? Worship God. Maybe the two most important words in the Bible. Worship God. Get up. Don't do that in front of me. Worship God. God is seeking true worshipers. And that will be our occupation forever and ever and ever and ever because that is the goal of our salvation. Do you understand that? So if that is the ultimate goal of our salvation and glory, what should we be doing now? Worshiping. Worshiping. Well, that's a start. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for the beautiful simplicity of your precious word. We thank you that you have created us for your praise. You have made us for your glory. You have redeemed us that we might be to the praise of your glory. You have saved us that you might have glory in the church. You have called to us both from the voice of angels and men to worship you. That is to extol your majesty and your person. To recite your glorious attributes and mighty works and to offer thanks. And oh God, make us true worshipers. Not like the Samaritans who didn't know who they worshipped. And not even like the Jews who knew who they worshipped but didn't know how to worship. May we neither worship as the Samaritans nor as the Jews, but may we worship the right God that is worshipping in truth with the right attitude that is worshiping in spirit. And, O oh God, may we enjoy the rejoicing that comes to the heart of a true worshiper. And we thank you. In Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen. Have a great day.